0: the different ideas and things that people come up with, but also if you have questions about it. Um, we would love to hear from you as we look to grow together as a church and as we see where God is leading us. Now something else to draw your minds to, I just want to welcome our newest member at City Light, Micah Guillaume. And well done to the Guillems being here. Uh, really well done by the way, um, but it's such an exciting thing and, uh, and uh, a, a great thing to celebrate as a church community too as we head forward. Now, as Jacob said uh, uh, previously, this series is about going from surviving to thriving. 2020, for many and various reasons, was a year of just kind of holding down the fort. But we don't want to stay in that mode forever. We want to press forward as a church because, as we saw last week, it's not so much about ourselves, but about those who don't yet know the mercy and goodness and forgiveness of God. The mission continues on, pandemic or no pandemic, and so we want to press forward as a church. And last week, we looked at how we, we, uh, we think God is calling us to do that as a whole church community, 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. together. By the way, I enjoyed, <laughs> I enjoyed I know, bringing to mind the fact that much of welcoming over the first couple of weeks, we would just be finding out people who already go to City Light. But I think that, that's exciting, right? That's like a you know, new kind of challenge. Um, but over these couple of weeks and then into the weekend away, what we're going to be working on together is how it is as individual followers of Jesus, we're going to thrive regardless of what happens this year. Because the call of Scripture to thrive as a follower of Jesus is whatever season. And no matter what is happening, we're still called to thrive as followers of Christ, and we can. And so over these few weeks, and then finishing up on the weekend away, which by the way, if you haven't read yet, it will be, the, this is our promise to you, the most restful and refreshing weekend away we've ever had. Okay, That's the, And I'll back it up afterwards, you can call me out on it we've planned it out i promise you the way it's going at the moment really if it's not it's probably your fault okay so that's the disclaimer that i'll put on it so get into that but what we're going to be doing in our community groups is working out how it is that we can encourage one another to thrive as individuals and so over these few weeks we're going to be focusing on five habits of the christian life that we've gone over before that is daily communion with god reading and prayer stewardship, how we use our finances to advance the gospel and to alleviate poverty and mi- misery in the world, church community, how it is that we connect with one another as deeply as Christian brothers and sisters, rest, how it is that we stop and rest and refresh, and evangelism, how it is that we share the gospel with people day after day after day. That's what we're going to be looking at. And we're going to t- spend time putting a plan together so that we don't just hope that we grow in these things over the year, but that we actually do. So at the end of this year, you might look back and say, I really saw God's grace at work in my life, and I can point to it in really obvious, practical ways. And so the first one that we're going to start on is on reading God's Word and meeting with Him daily. And as a segue that you probably didn't see coming, I've been thinking about magic a lot lately. It's been on my mind because the kids have been... Uh, You're listening through, I was going to say reading through the Harry Potter books, they're listening through the Harry Potter audiobooks and so I would say I'd never read the books, I was one of the people who went straight to the movies, I was a bit late to the game but we've been going through the books and they're pretty engrossing but I don't know if you've noticed this as you've read, watched the Harry Potter series but isn't it funny how similar the use of magic is with technology? Most of the uses for magic in the Harry Potter world, but it's, it's not just the Harry Potter ones, other books that kind of engage with magic or that sort of thing, it's interesting how much of it is so similar to the way we use technology. Most of it is used for convenience or for entertainment or even for exerting power. I mean, in the, in the Harry Potter world, the wizards and witches kind of represent the colonial powers of old, right? They are these supremely uh, powerful uh, sort of group of people who then, there's some debate within the community about how it is that they're to relate to the non-magical world or the muggles. So much of it is similar to how technology has been used. And then I remembered this quote that you might have seen float by from time to time. Arthur C. Clarke said that any sufficiently advanced magic is, uh, sorry, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And That got me thinking there is a bit of a connection between technology and magic. Then I also remembered uh, an essay that uh, author and philosopher C.S. Lewis wrote, called The Abolition of Man, where he makes this connection between science and magic. Just look at what he observes. It's a longer quote, so stay with me as we track through it. It says, The fact that the scientist has succeeded where the magician failed has put such a wide contrast between them in popular thought that the real story of the birth of science is misunderstood. You will even find people who write about the 16th century as if magic were a medieval survival, and science, the new thing that came in to sweep it away. Those who have studied the period know better. There was very little magic in the Middle Ages. The 16th and 17th centuries are the high noon of magic. The serious magical endeavour and the serious scientific endeavour are twins. One was sickly and died, and the other strong and throve. But they were twins." They were born of the same impulse. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. The solution is a technique, and both, in the practice of this technique, are ready to do things hitherto regarded as disgusting and impious, such as digging up and mutilating the dead. Reflect on that. That's interesting. He says they were born out of the same desire that it wasn't as if all the world kind of believed in magic and then suddenly in the 16th century people got smart and understood science, that at the same time there was this explosion in both disciplines, but it came from the same impulse. It was from the same project, a human-centered project to tame the world, that man was the mark of all things and that if we can just find the right technique, we can subdue creation under us. Now why do I say all of this? Because technology carries worldview in it. It's not blank. It didn't come from nowhere. It has worldview built into it. See, if you were pursuing magic, it would be quite obvious that you're engaging with questions of worldview, of God, of what is real, of what, is, of what matters, of moral issues. But technology in every way is the same. It was born out of a worldview and it carries with it worldview. And the default worldview that we live in is one of you would call it secular humanism. The belief that if there is a God or gods, they are essentially unknowable. And so everything that is meaningful in life is to be found in the here and now. And that everything that's meaningful personally is to be found within myself. And almost all technology builds in it and perpetuates this worldview. The view that I'm a self ruling being, I'm an I'm an individual. Of hedonism, that I need to feel good all of the time. Of humanism, that I can do or be anything and I need to unlock my potential. We are swimming in this stuff week after week. And every time we engage in technology, every time we watch something, this is the worldview that we're eating up. And there are billion and trillion dollar companies that have a vested interest in perpetuating some of these views. The view that I need to feel good all the time keeps you consuming and spending. And so the question is, how is it that you are going to thrive this year if you're a follower of Jesus? I mean, even if you're here and joining us and you wouldn't describe yourself as religious or spiritual, the question still would be, is what I'm using and how I'm acting building a worldview that I really believe in? Are these the things that I really consider the most true or meaningful things about life? But if you're a follower of Jesus, it's even more significant because you are bought with a price. You are set apart to follow Christ with all your heart. And so the question is, if technology is in no way neutral, and using it and being in a world that is filled with it is going to incline us away from Christ, what is your plan to incline towards Christ? To thrive in Him. This isn't a new problem. Peter, in writing to the church in 2 Peter, says this, 2 Peter 1, to 8-9. For if these qualities, and he's talking about the qualities of following Christ, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, He says, If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgot that he was cleansed from his former sins. It says, Knowing Jesus is meant to bear fruit. We're meant to bear fruit in the knowledge of Jesus. It's meant to transform our lives. It's meant to have a practical impact on how you look. That if you are a follower of Christ in this culture, the way that you engage the world and the way that you live, how you prioritize your life should look different. It should reflect the fact that you were bought with a price, that you were set free and that you belong to Jesus now. But here Peter says, so often it can be as though we've forgotten that we were cleansed from our former sins. We can live as though we'd forgotten the gospel, as though we hadn't been saved. But our our desire... Peter's desire for the church and our desire is to thrive and to bear fruit in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be looking at how it is over the next few weeks that we will thrive as followers of Jesus, that in our own life we'll be putting into place things that will build us as disciples of Christ, that we might honour him and bear fruit throughout the year, regardless of what happens. And so I'm going to pray as we go to open up God's word about his word that he would be doing that work in us. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you speak to us through your word, that you have not left us alone in the world, that you have given us your word that we might know you truly, that we might know your will and how to live in your world. And Father, we pray that you would give us a heart to know and to love you through your word you would make us people of prayer, who depend on you deeply. And all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. When it comes to the practice of actually opening God's word, and meeting with him through his word daily, why is it so difficult for Christians? If you are a follower of Jesus, if you believe, wow, God wrote a book, and he speaks to me personally through it, that this is the primary way to know God, why, in a sense, is it such a difficult... In some, in some senses, on paper, it should be the easiest thing in the world. And maybe it is for you. Maybe you're, maybe the, you're one of those people who, for whom it's never really been a struggle. But for the rest of us, the question is, why is it often so difficult? See, everybody knows it. Everybody at some point has probably felt some level of guilt about it, the fact that we're not in God's Word more often. But why is it that it's so difficult? I'd say it's the case that most of what we learn about life and most of what we do just day by day are are things that we learn to do with easy rewards. The amount of tech that we engage with, particularly our phones, are immediately rewarding and they immediately revoke a deep response. You can find things that will make you outraged or fearful, make you laugh, lust, jealousy, shame. All of those things are at a fingertip. And the moment you do them, you'll feel something. But God has designed His Word to release its treasures as we think deeply and consider deeply His words and prayerfully work through it. And so in that way, it's kind of counterintuitive. Most of the things that we engage with in life are immediately rewarding, and yet God has designed His Word differently. He's designed this book carefully and skillfully. He's designed it to reveal Himself It's God-breathed. It's His very words. And He's designed it to reveal its treasure in a unique way as we think deeply on His word and as we pray that He, by His Spirit, would reveal it to us. It's an immense and artful work, and it's deep and rich, and we must dive into it. But it's counterintuitive to us. And so oftentimes, it's difficult to focus, to concentrate. But the rewards of the Bible, though they're initially slow, yield much richer rewards. And so we are called to think and pray deeply. And if you don't believe me, this is the very thing that Paul commands his young protege, Timothy, in the book of of 2 Timothy in 2.7. Look at what he says uh, to this young leader. He says to him, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. That's an interesting expression, isn't it? First, he says to him, think over what I say. So this is a letter, the, one, the letter of 1 Timothy, God's very Word. And he's saying to him, think deeply on these things. Consider it. This is God's Word. You ought to use your mind to engage with it. And then he also says, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now you'd kind of think it would be one or the other, wouldn't it? Either use your mind to understand God's Word, the Bible, or God will give you understanding. He'll just put it into you. I mean, a lot of people think of it a little bit like The Matrix. There's a scene where he's, you know, he's sitting down strapped to a chair and they just plug him into the computer and then he wakes up and says, I know Kung Fu. Like it's it's downloaded into him immediately. And so some people think, well, because God's word is a supernatural work, that that's how you should understand scripture. It shouldn't require deep thinking or anything like that. It's really basically the, the, the Holy Spirit plugs you in and then suddenly you know Kung Fu, you know the whole Bible. But here Paul says it's both. He says, think over what I say. Use your mind, the mind that God has given you. And at the same time, the Lord will give you understanding. Why? Because the Bible is a divine and human work. The Bible is a divine and human work. In 2 Peter, the the letter that we are looking at just before, he says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture came from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy of Scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke it from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That God used human authors to write down and record His words. And He didn't override their personalities. He didn't override their humanity. But worked through it, supernaturally guiding them to write the very words of God. It wasn't just a divine work. It wasn't that somebody woke up one day and there was a book there and someone was like, Oh my gosh, this must be from God. He's just sent it down from heaven like a comet. It was written by authors who lived in history and we know about their lives and they write about their relationships and their lives in God's very Word. It's a divine and human work. And so in understanding and digging into Scripture, it's no surprise then that that too is a divine and human work, that you are to think, but to think deeply is not sufficient. We also need God's work by His Spirit to enlighten our minds so that we can see this as God's Word, not just as another literary text. We are to think and we are to pray. It's God's Word. But then Psalm 1 gives us the foundation for approaching God's Word. Psalm 1 is kind of the entry point into the Psalms, obviously because it's the first one. I'm guessing you, you picked that up from Psalm 1. But here it's kind of laying out how it is that you will get the most out of this book of 150 Psalms. It's kind of like a, when you go on a ride and they're like, you must be this high to pass. Here it's saying, you know, this is what you must be like in order to get the most out of God's Word as you enter into this world of the Psalms. And he lays it out here in clear terms. Look at what he says. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. He says here that the way to get into God's Word is these three things. To reject the counsel of the wicked, sinners and scoffers, to delight in God's law, and to meditate on it day and night. Reject the counsel of the wicked, delight in the law of the Lord, and meditate on it day and night. The first thing he says is to reject the counsel of the wicked. He says, The blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. I don't know if you notice the progression there, but it goes from walking to standing to sitting. The idea, the picture is of someone who is at first kind of flirting with the counsel that that someone who doesn't follow Jesus offers to then really starting to engage in it than to actually kind of sitting in it. You can think of it in this way. Years ago when I visited Bali and I was only there for two days and it was my first time in in an intense kind of tourist hotspot. And if you've ever been there or anywhere like that and you've walked through markets, you'll notice that there is a pattern to how people will try and get you to buy things. You might be walking and doing the thing that you do and, you know, sure, you don't do it, maybe other people do but when you see, you know, charities or something like that and you pretend to be on your phone or you look straight ahead so you don't make eye contact so they don't pull you over or whatever it is, you're walking through a market and you're trying not to make eye contact, you're walking quickly and someone will just start walking along beside you and they'll start talking to you, offering you sort of products and then if they can get you to stop, then they might even get you to sit down and at that point, you're hooked, you're in. Now this, what he's describing here is a similar thing. The idea of of first walking alongside someone and then standing and then sitting is the vision of someone who knows that God's word is true, but instead is kind of entertaining the ideas that really run against God's word, considering them more deeply, and then eventually sitting in them. says the person who is to get the most out of God's word makes a considered decision to say, No, I will listen to God alone. My delight is in God's word. I will not entertain the counsel of the wicked. Someone who from the start has said, I know that where life is found is in God's word. And I'm guarding my ears, my eyes and my heart against any counsel that would run against God's word. There would be someone who has made that commitment from the start to reject foreign counsel. That's the first thing. The second is this. It's someone who delights in God's Word. This is the obvious counterpart to the second. It means that you believe that God's Word is where life is found. It's not a chore or a task. It's not something that Christians do. It's not a habit that Christians maintain because that's what they've kind of always done. The Word is to delight. To say, I love this stuff. I love God's Word, not because it's it's an interesting book, but because it's from the God of the universe. It's God's word to me. It's my creator speaking to me. It's his word, his precepts, his statutes, his law. It is so good. He says here that the one who is blessed is one who delights in God's word, who knows who wrote it, why it matters, and that our very life is to be found in it. The Bible is not a tawdry book of rules, It is the very word of God about what life means and where life is to be found. It's a beautiful image. Our delight is meant to be in God's word. And then thirdly, he says, you're to meditate on it day and night. Blessed is the one who meditates on God's law night and day. Now, here the word meditate just means deep, focused, concentrated thought. It's interesting, the way that the Scriptures use meditating is to meditate on God's Word. That's not, not an Eastern view of meditation. I don't know if you've noticed, but many statues of Buddha will picture him with his eyes closed, the idea being that you are to reflect in the inner universe or even to refuse thought at all, to kind of get yourself into a point of neutrality. That's the goal of meditation. It's almost a kind of a nihilism. But meditation in the Scripture is not about ending thought, but about thinking deeply. Here the psalmist is saying the one who is blessed is the one who focuses, who meditates, who gives the best of your mind to the Word of God. And the reason he says night and day is not because you had to have a session at night and day. It's just those are the only times that are available, especially in a culture that's pre-the clock. There weren't other sections of the day. It's either night or it's day. So when is the time to meditate on God's Word? All of it. Someone who is almost obsessing over God's Word, knowing that in it is all that matters. So here, his command is the one who is blessed, is one who rejects foreign counsel, who delights in God's Word and who meditates on it day and night, because what could be more worthy of our best thinking? And he says, if you do this, what will you be like? Someone says you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. That is strong able to weather storms, thriving. It yields fruit in its season. It is fruitful. It is not fruitless in the knowledge of God. It actually bears fruit. Its leaf doesn't wither. It's evergreen. In all that he does, he prospers. And by contrast, the wicked are not so. Their lives are blown here and there and will not stand in the judgment. The image here is of someone who is flourishing, someone who is thriving it's one of abundance and strength as opposed to barrenness and fragility thinking deeply and constantly on god's word leads to abundance this is how god has designed us to thrive i don't know how many of you tried the experiment last year that we did and if you're new to church we don't do experiments all the time but this has probably been the season for it right but last year we took a week where instead of gathering on a sunday with given, given that everyone here, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Spirit of God, you know God personally, you've been called into a relationship with Him, we send everyone away to just go and meet with God alone for an hour. And I don't, I don't know how that went for you. I don't know whether or not in the end you kind of planned to do it and then the plans fell apart, or for those of you who went there, what it was like for you. But many, many people kind of fed back, how surprisingly enriching and easy it was. That Actually, the, the, the concept at the start, the idea of going away and just being with God for an hour seemed like, oh my gosh, even, even 10 minutes at the moment seems like a stretch. I can't imagine an hour. And then by the end of it, had actually run out of time and needed to go. With God's Word, when we give clear time to sit and to meditate deeply on His Word, is the deepest joy we can experience. To know that we are with our Creator, that He is drawn near to us, that He sent Jesus to take away our sin so that we could enjoy a relationship with Him personally. You don't have to go to a priest or some kind of religious figure to kind of pass on a message to God. You have a relationship with your Creator, a direct line. And the joy of our life is to sit before him and to contemplate his word and to meet with him in his word and in prayer. So I started with the question then, well, why is it so difficult? Well, I think there are a few things that kill our time with God. And so as we, as we actually think about planning about how am I, I going to have a year this year that might be my best year ever in terms of meeting with God in word and prayer, we need to be aware of what are the things that kill our time with God. Well, if someone says that the blessed man is the one who meditates deeply on God's Word, then digital agitation is the thing that kills our ability to read God's Word deeply. Nicholas Carr is a guy who, uh, he's a tech and business writer, and he wrote a, a book called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brain. And this was a finalist for a Pulitzer Award back in 2011. So it was before even really smartphones had kind of, Taken the sort of hold on the market that they have now, but he uh, he wrote an article that was titled "Is Google Making Us Stupid," which was of you know of course it was written in an antagonistic way to get a reaction, and it did get a reaction. There were lots of responses, but his reflection was this: that he, the thing that that kind of triggered him writing the book was he was saying after years of using the internet, he found that when he sat down to read, he couldn't concentrate. He kept feeling the urge to flick or to move or to even touch the page. And he realized that it had affected his ability just to sit and to read. Being an avid reader from youth, he, he, this was a, a new experience for him. Previously, it had been easy to sit down with a book and just find himself engrossed with it, but now he was finding himself just agitated and unable just to sit with the text and read it, even a novel. I mean, just think of the impact that has when we sit down to read God's Word, if we are so wired and buzzed, we are it's scarcely going to be able to sit down and reflect deeply on the very words of God and to see what fruit and goodness is there. I mean, I don't know how many of you have had that experience when you actually plan to sit down and to read God's Word and you find yourself just agitated, like you want to flick through, like you're looking for something more. See, it is the case that we're going to need to cut out the things that are going to leave us in a state of just digital agitation if we want to get the most out of God's Word. It won't be the case that you can engage with constantly and frequently every piece of tech that comes across your way and then turn suddenly and focus deeply on God's Word. The blessed life is to meditate deeply on God's Word and so we're to kill anything that would kill that. So that's the first challenge, I think, is, is digital agitation. The second one is just finding undistracted time. We need clear, undistracted time just to meet with God, to not give Him half our thoughts. You've all probably been in conversations where someone was talking to you, but their eyes were flicking to something else. Either that it was a, like it's a work meeting or something like that, and clearly they want to speak to someone else, or they're just talking to you because you were the first one who walked in, but they're looking to move on from the conversation. And when you do that, people are half talking to you, half listening, but also half looking somewhere else. The reason we need undistracted time is that we might not meet with God in that way semi looking for something else to do, giving half attention to his word. That we would need clear and undistracted time. A time in the day where there is space to sit and to listen to God's Word, to heed His command, to be still and know your God. To be still, not in between things, not moving on from something, but just to sit with God's very Word. Something that feels so counterintuitive. That's the second one. We need an undistracted time. And the third one is this, allowing God to speak for Himself. In 2 Timothy 2.15, again, Paul commands Timothy and says to him, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. God's word is truth, which means that there is actually a correct or an incorrect way to read it. And that's not to say that every passage is easy and obvious, but it does mean that there's an author who has an intention, who is trying to communicate something. It's not the case that you can come to God's word and we can all just say, what does this mean for you? There is an intention. We're meant to read it, not just to confirm our own views, but to read it as it, as it really is. A word that has been authored by someone with an intention. Years ago, I read a biography of, of Hitler. Hitler. And it was written by uh, someone called Ian Kershaw, and it's a a reasonably formative uh, biography and pretty comprehensive. But his reflection on Hitler's life as a reader was that he read in a particular way. In his speeches, he would kind of reference all these sort of, you know, various texts and authors that he'd read. But there was a clear pattern to the way that Hitler would read things. The truth was, he had already made up his mind about what he believed to be true about the world and about his worldview. And Kershaw's reflection is this, and this was his quote. He said, Hitler read only to confirm his prejudices. That is, anything that did not confirm his prejudice was neutral and skipped over, and he looked only for the things that would confirm his prejudices. He read having already decided what was true and wasn't true in his mind, and only opened text to look for thoughts, passages to recruit into his already believed worldview. Needless to say, don't read God's Word like Hitler. I don't know if that's too strong a way to put it. Don't come to the Scriptures already having decided what is or isn't true for you, because if you do, it will not be an authentic experience with the Creator of the universe. He is an author, the author of life, and He is the author of His Word. And there will be times when you will read things that will upset you. If you didn't, you are not reading the, God of, the Word of God as it really is. There will be times when His Word clashes with our own presuppositions, with even what feels true. Because in every and any culture, God's Word will affirm some things, but it will also reject some things. It says right at the beginning of, of, of Psalm 1, that the one who is blessed is the one who has decided that I will reject counsel that is not from God. I want to hear from God and God alone. Do you approach scripture looking only to confirm the things that you already believe to be true about life and the universe and God himself? Or do you open it afresh, thinking whatever God has to say in his word is true and good? And this will mean that sometimes you'll read things that are hard to read. Sometimes you'll read things that clash with your sensibilities. It will mean that you try to read across the broad de- a length of Scripture and not just the parts that you already know and love. Because when we do that, we really encounter God as He really is. That is the full experience of knowing the God of the universe. To so not just read the bits that are kind of, you can put in sort of swirly fonts over a nature background, but the Scriptures that are hard to wrestle with. We need to allow God to speak for himself. That is how you read God's word deeply. So this is what I want to land on practically. Over these couple of weeks, so you get this in digital form in your groups, but next week they'll be here for you in an envelope. It's called A Plan to Thrive. And each, each section has just a short section of scriptures and some reflections to write down on your past year and to think how it is that over this year you want a plan to thrive with God. And the first one will be on this, on reading God's Word deeply. And here are the four things that we're going to reflect on over this week. That as we lay out a plan to pray and to read God's Word, that we'd be considering the when, the where, the how and the what. So it wouldn't just be an idea. I mean, you might have heard this phrase before that um, a plan, what is that, a goal without a plan is just a wish. You've probably heard that before. Most people wish they would spend more time in God's Word. Without a plan, it's unlikely to happen this year. So we're going to plan for it. The first one is the when. It needs to be your best time. Your best time. Not your offcuts. What is the best time in the week to read God's Word? Is it, It's probably going to be the morning before distraction kind of kicks in, before half your attention is on something else. But when would be the best of your mind? Now the one challenge to this I'd say is if you've got young kids, the morning is a very challenging time to do it because trying to get up before them can sometimes mean getting up yesterday and all of that. So it's very difficult to do but you can plan for that. I mean you know that that's going to be the case, right? That's not going to change in the next little while so you can factor that in. I remember when we had little kids, the way that we did it was to, was to swap. One of us would one of us would go into the one room in the house where the doors could be locked and where there could be no intrusion and for half an hour would cover for the other so that we could sit as best as we could. That was the best time we had available that day to sit and to reflect on God's Word. But to choose a time that is a set and forget time and it's the same time every day that is the easiest way to do it. The where. To sit somewhere, where is, where is somewhere conducive to listening to God. Recently, I've been reflecting on this because I've been sitting on our couch to do it. We got a dog last year, and that actually took up the best spot in the house, which was like a window where you could, sort of, you could see some trees and that sort of thing. But I'm thinking about shifting the dog elsewhere because I know when I, for whatever reason, when I sit down on a couch, it's a kind of a, a lazy, sleepy posture that isn't that conducive to actually sitting and reflecting on God's Word deeply. And it actually has an impact. I mean, God has made us mind, body, and spirit together, an fleshed soul and how we, our posture affects things. And so to consider where is it, inside or outside, what is going to be most conducive to sitting and meditating deeply on God's word? That's the where. Three is a how. How will you do it? Will you journal alongside scripture? Will you have a set pattern? What can you do to make it compelling to do it? I bought I bought a new journal this week because one of the kids spilt like a coffee all through the last one. And for whatever reason now, it just it devalues the time for me. Opening up, you know when you open up pages and they're all warped and like crinkly and all that sort of thing, it just feels a bit eh. So I've got a new journal ready to kick it off for the year as just something to kind of get me into the mind space of I want to meet with God deeply in his word over this year. But for you it might be, I don't know, it might be getting a nice pen. And that's the one pen that's your Bible reading, like reflecting deeply on God's word pen and nobody else gets to touch it. It's not used for any, it's sacred. You don't want to overdo it obviously, right? You don't want it to become like some kind of a sacrament, but just something to get you in the mindset of this is, this is no minor thing. To meet with my creator is not just an everyday habit. This is something of cosmic significance. Is it a blood-bought privilege to be able to do this? So to think how we take two minutes of silence, and this is a hard thing to do. I don't know if you've ever tried to just clear your mind for two minutes so that when you come to God's Word, your mind is not racing with all the distractions of the day, all the things that you have to get done, all the things that you didn't get done yesterday, but your mind is clear so that you can hear from God. That's the how. And lastly, what? What will you read? Because if you don't choose something, it's going to be the psalms, isn't it? It always, that's, someone called it, and he's it's, it's sort of joking about it, but someone called it spiritual fast food. It's like when you don't know what to get, it's kind of like takeaway. You just dip in. Now, that's not really how the psalms are, obviously. I mean, we just dove into one then. But having a plan to engage with God's word over the year so that you might not just read the bits that you're most familiar with that reverberate back to you the things you already believe are true that you might actually engage with all of God's Word, that He might actually surprise you and delight you even. It might cause you to wrestle with new things about the character of God as you open up His Word. But whatever it is, having some kind of a plan, so that when you open His Word, you know where you're heading, so that we might give ourselves the best possible chance to engage with God's Word over this year. And the thing that I look forward to the most in doing all of this is that as a community, God has made us in so many different ways with so many different personalities. Then imagine how good it will be over the coming weeks to share with one another the ideas that we have, what's working and what isn't, and to wrestle through together as a community project how it might be that we would be a people of God who are dependent on God's Word. How encouraging is it, especially when you've had a dive of a week, when someone else is sharing how much they're delighting in God's Word? And just know if that's you, you're not going to be in groups where people will be like, oh, here comes Flanders again. Oh, I had a great week in the Word. Yeah, thanks for sharing. But it is actually an encouragement, isn't it? When you hear that other people are hearing from God and His Word daily, that encourages us to press on in it too. And so in groups this week, we're going to be praying through the when, the where, the how, and the what, that we might be a people who know God deeply through His Word, that we might thrive, that we might regardless of what happens this year, be a people who at the end of the year say, I know God more deeply and more intimately than I did at the beginning of 2021. Let's pray that He'd do that work in our hearts. Father, we thank You that Your Word is so good. And we so often are neglectful of this truth that we forget that in Your Word is our delight. That You reveal Yourself, that we meet You in Your Word. Father, we pray that you would help us as a church community to encourage one another to meet with you daily, to be people who know you deeply, You cut out distraction and meaningless pursuits in order to pursue you. And Father, we thank you that you have given us everything we need to do this, that your spirit is at work within us, that we might know your very thoughts and mind. And Father, we just pray that you would strengthen us through this, And that we would thrive this year for the sake of your holy name, that Christ may be honored in this community. Amen. We're going to take a minute now to reflect on these things. And after that, Jacob's going to lead us in the next part of our meeting.